I was also interested in this idea of like, how do men, how do young men grow up? Like, what are the things that need to change in you in order to kind of like become a man? And also how the work we do shapes us and how it shapes who we are. This is the Adventure Sports Podcast, where we talk to athletes, adventurers, and business owners from around the world of adventure sports. Whether you're climbing Mount Everest, starting a bike shop, or getting up off your couch to take your kids hiking for the first time, we want you to have the motivation and inspiration you need to chase that next adventure. The Adventure Sports Podcast is brought to you by Camp Crate, the leaders in fully planned self-guided backpacking adventures, as well as backpacking gear rental. You can check them out at campcrate.net. So there's this new backpacking food company called Peak Refuel. And honestly, I, I gave them a shot for my last backpacking trip. Y'all, it was literally the best backpacking food I've ever had in my life. I was so impressed by them that I wanted to reach out and get a deal for our listeners. So if you keep listening to the episode, I'll tell you how to save 20% off an order with them. Hey friends, check out powder7.com, new sponsor for the Adventure Sports Podcast. I've worked with these guys for a couple of years, and two of my sons have bought their most recent pairs of skis there. What's cool is that while they do sell new skis, they also sell previously used demo skis. And these demo skis come with demo bindings, so no need to remount anything. And they are sold for less than half of what you would have to pay otherwise. Great deal, great website, great people. Check out powder7.com. Hello, this is Jordan from Netflix. How may I help you? Hey, Jordan. I uh, was wondering, could I get 99 subscriptions to Netflix for free and then pay for the 100th? And then everybody, all 100 people could just use it? No, you cannot. Why is that? Because we only give out one free trial per person, per household, actually. So there's no way that I can pay for one subscription, but like 99 other people use it for free? No, not that I know of. All right. Well, thanks anyway. All right. Well, thanks for calling Netflix, and I hope you have a great day. Thanks, Jordan. Look, I know we're not as entertaining as Netflix, but even to them, it sounds ridiculous to have a service for absolutely free. And the truth is, 99% of podcast listeners don't support the shows that they love. And just like something on Netflix, you know, we have production costs, we have hosting costs. There's a lot of costs actually associated with this show, and it takes money and time to produce. So in this season of giving, we ask you, would you like to become a supporter of our show? Because we don't support this show for everybody. You know, this show is is a niche. Not everyone's going to like listening to adventures from all over the world. But you guys do. And when you become a patron of the show, you basically get the upper hand in influencing what we talk about, who we talk to, and what you want. Because you've shown us that you're a super fan of the show. And that's why we wanted to make it easier for you to support the show. So... There is the ability to support the show for $5 a month at patreon.com. But now, there's the ability to support the show for a dollar a month. Come on. We've got to be worth $1. Not only do you get to influence the show, you get the satisfaction of knowing you're making this thing happen. So join us in making the Adventure Sports Podcast the absolute best show it can be.
Thank you. Hey, everybody. Uh, welcome to the show. Today, we have a pretty pretty interesting guest. He's a, a filmmaker. Um, he has produced a number of films, documentaries. Uh, a lot of his stuff has been featured uh, with clients like Tesla, Solar City, Patagonia, the Army. Um, he is a professor at USC's School of Cinematic Arts and a certified wildland firefighter. Uh, welcome to the show, Alex Jablonski. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, man. Where are you? Uh, where are you coming from today? Uh, I live in Los Angeles. So, so uh, you are a you're a wildland firefighter, won't you? What What is that about? Is that something you pursued b- before you got into film or or during? No. This the the reason I became a wildland firefighter was to make the uh, to make this film to make Wildland. So it was. Um, when we began pursuing the project, uh, one of the things we realized was that kind of getting um, both access and a certain amount of like credibility was going to be really critical. And one of the ways we thought to do that was to just get certified uh, right off the bat. So we went through the training and passed the, uh, the pack test. And then we had what was called our red cards. Um, and so we were, we were certified before we even began making the film. Wow. That is, that's awesome, man. Because, uh, you know, I, I watched the film last night, actually, and by the way, it was fantastic. And that is what we're Thank talking you. about today. Yeah, no worries. And I was thinking, like, holy crap, that camera is really close to that fire. <laughs> I really hope that these filmmakers like knew what they were doing because you are in some. You know, it's not it's not CGI. It's it's precarious situations that you put yourself in. So I'm sure that was almost necessary. Mm. Absolutely. So so. You know, to make the film, and so for folks, obviously folks listening probably haven't seen it. This film is about one wildland firefighting crew over the course of one summer. So you see these guys go from job interviews to training on through the entire fire season. And it kind of culminates in this big this big uh, fight with a, with a fire that's kind of broken out and escaped its containment lines. And uh, so to make the film we were actually members of the crew. So we weren't just, you know, kind of dropping in, parachuting in and shooting for a couple of days and then being out. Like we were on the crew, we were working as firefighters. And so we were only shooting probably 10 or 15% of the time that we were out there. And the rest of the time we were actually doing the work. Holy cow. Yeah. I mean, but that was, um, it was really necessary to get the kind of vibe of what, that work and what that life is like and what those summers feel like. I mean, that was, it was a really critical part, I think for us to just understand the kind of the headspace that you're in when you're out there. How, what, how difficult was it to acquire that certification? It's relatively easy, actually. I mean, it, okay. you have to do, you have to do a pack test, which is that you have to, um, you know, walk three miles in under 45 minutes while wearing a 45 pound weighted vest. And, you know, most people in fire will tell you that's going to be the easiest thing you're going to do all summer. Um, And then it's five days of training. And that's pretty much it. Um, You have to take tests along the way, you know, testing your fire knowledge. But um, but that's pretty much what's required to just get your very base level wildland firefighter cert. Huh. Do you think that comes from a need for more firefighters or is that really basically the brunt of the work. No, I think so. 
um, you know, it's, it's a very tiered system in the sense that, uh, certain crews for certain classifications have to have people who have, um, multiple years of fire experience. Like the crew that I was on, which was a type two IA, which stands for initial attack. I might get this wrong, but I believe that the requirement is that you have to have either 12 or 14, what's called seasoned firefighters, meaning guys who have more than one year in fire. So you're only carrying like six to eight rookies at a time. So um, I think what it is, is like once you get in and you get hired, a lot of the, the training and the quals, the qualifications come on the job. So pretty much it's like get these guys in, they start working, and then you're learning so much, you know, fire after fire after fire. You're learning whether it's you know, radio protocols or, um, how to work with helicopters or why you, you know, kind of, um, strategic approaches and all that stuff. A lot of that stuff is just learned on the job. So did you find it difficult to carry your equipment, your, your, your firefighting equipment as well as your camera equipment? Yeah. I mean, it definitely, so we shot this film primarily on the red, which is a 6k camera. It's the same camera that like Lord of the Rings was shot on and probably a lot of your favorite commercials. Yeah, and, it was a beautifully, uh, beautiful film, man. Oh, thank you so much. So um, but so that that had some weight to it. And then uh, we also had to carry an extra battery and a lens. We had a really stripped down um, camera package. But in addition to that, you're carrying all of your water. You're carrying a hand tool. You're carrying you know, your lunch, you're carrying some kind of like miscellaneous stuff. Like I always carried an extra pair of socks and extra pair of sock liners, um, things like that. So all in all, you know, I was carrying probably 55 pounds at the start of the day. And as I drank my water, that would go down, but, but you know, somewhere around 50 pounds and in fire for people who don't know, you're required to wear your pack at all times. You're required to wear your pack at all times and carry a hand tool at all times. So even when you're, you know, digging line in one section, you're not taking that pack off. So that was just an extra 55 pounds that you're wearing for 12 to 16 hours a day. I didn't, I know I noticed that everyone kept their packs on now that you mention it. Why, why is that? So you just don't become separated from basically gear to survive with? Yeah. And also, you know, you're required to carry a fire shelter. These are these kind yes. of uh, mm -hmm. space age looking uh, reflective, bla not blankets, but little shelters that uh, in case of a burnover and that, you know, typically sits um, at the bottom on the bottom of your pack strapped on the exterior and you need to have that on you at all times. So that's a big reason why you're just never taking your pack off. Uh, and so you, so that you can always have that if there's the need to deploy. Wow. You know, what an interesting. Uh idea did did you know that you were going to acquire that certification when you started uh pursuing the idea of the film or was that something you realized you had to do later on it was just kind of like well what's the what's the best way to 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 earn some trust and to show that we're serious and so when we began to meet with people initially about shooting the film you know one of the first things we would say is well we already have our red cars we're already certified and what that what that signified to the people across the table from us is, OK, these guys have already put in their own time and their own money to get certified. And they, you know, and and like one of the guys that we were talking to said, like, look, you guys are in good physical shape. I would hire you as firefighters. You seem smart. You seem like you want to work hard. 
And so knowing that, it's like you already have gotten a lot further than I think a lot of other filmmakers would have who had they pursued it in a different different direction. Yeah, no kidding, man. I assume it, it was you and uh, your partner, correct? That yeah, were the only Ka- two? Khalil, Khalil Hudson yes. is the director, yeah. And so what was the dynamic with the two of you there? Did did you, obviously you want it to seem as natural as possible, but these are admittedly people that are not being filmed very often, probably. Right. And what was that like? Did you, did you feel a part of the group or did you feel somewhat isolated from them? Well, it, it, it wasn't so black and white. It was more of a spectrum and it was more of a journey in the sense that when we started out, we were isolated. And it wasn't that we started out and it was like, boom, okay, we're on a fire and here we are. You know, the process, like anything, like any relationship, right? Like the process of earning trust was very much a process. So we uh, began going up to Oregon, to Southern Oregon, which is where, um, where this crew is out of. They're out of Grants Pass in Southern Oregon. We began going up there. And first it was just meeting the guys who run the company and the base manager. And it was like hanging out for a day, no camera out, just talking and saying, Hey, could we go and talk to these guys? And, and, you know, we started this process in, in, uh, the spring of 2015. So it was during kind of coming off the winter season. And at that time, what these guys were doing is called project work, which is basically forestry work where they're thinning forests, um, you know, stacking sticks. There are guys who are, who are limbing trees, who are cutting small trees down, and then stack just big piles of, of sticks. And um, it's not particularly exciting work. It's hard. You're on steep ground, and you're, you know, back off of uh, old fire roads or logging roads. And the fact that we would be willing to trudge out there and just hang out for 12 hours with these guys they started to see that we were serious about this. Um, and then slowly as we began to see like, oh, this character would be good or we'd like to follow this guy, we would start talking to him. But there was like a ton of resistance. Like guys didn't want us around. They thought that we had some kind of ulterior motives or they just weren't really sure what we were up to. And uh, in the film, there's a crew boss who, who's the the kind of quarterback uh or the head coach of the crew, and his name is Tim Brewer. And Tim is, he's got at this point 22 years in fire, um, and is just one of the smartest, sharpest crew bosses around, and and is really well respected. But he's gruff, he's got a very sharp tongue, and um, he's a smart guy with a quick wit, and he can cut you down to size pretty fast. And the first time I approached him about being in this, I said, Hey Tim, you know, we were like passing each other at the base. And I said, Hey Tim, my name's Alex. Uh, you know, we're making this film. Do you know about that? And, um, you know, we're interested in talking to you about, about maybe following you or or, or following your crew. And he just looked at me and he said, you know, I'm a dickhead. Right. And then he just, (laughs) he just, he, he, he walked, he walked away from me and he didn't speak to me for a week. And, uh, and now Tim and I text all the time. We're buddies, you know, we're friends and, and, um, and, uh, obviously we've had a, we have a very different relationship now, but that w- that took, you know, two years before we could get to that point. And, and one thing I would say is, is for folks who, who see the film or folks who, who, who have a chance to, to watch it, you know, Tim reveals some really personal stuff about his own, his own life. 
in the film. Yes. Yeah. And uh, I think, and, and the role that fire has played in his own life. And I think that, you know, that's, that's where a lot of the power of this film comes from. And that is just, that comes about simply by earning someone's trust. No, that's uh man. There's just so much. The film was so interesting and there were plenty of characters that you began to really enjoy following, wanted to learn more about. Um, personally, I, like I was craving more of it by the time it ended. It was shorter mm-hmm. than I expected. Um, which I, you know, producing a film is, I can't even imagine how much work I've never done it, but yeah, you, it, it's like, man, I want to know more about this guy. Why is he doing this? Why is he out here? Was it frustrating for you not being able to focus on it all the time with like, uh, you know, an eight foot flame approaching you? <laughs> uh, no, I mean, you know, we, uh, I mean, I think, I actually think that you saying like, oh, I wish it was longer is a great thing. You know, as a filmmaker, you always want people right. to, to leave wanting more. Um, I honestly, like it wasn't so much the fire as it was the exhaustion. Because, um, you know, like you're really tired out there. And uh, for folks who don't know, you know, you're sleeping in fire camp. So you're sleeping on the ground or you're sleeping in a tent, just depending on the day. Uh, And, you know, we would get back into camp, I would say, typically eight, nine o'clock at night, um, grab something to eat, get into your sleeping bag and then you're up at five or five thirty, typically five I would say, um and back out. And, you know, carrying these packs, uh, you work fourteen days in a row before you have two days off. And so day eight, nine, ten comes and you know, you're just sick of it. And the idea of in the midst of day nine or ten having a moment where you go, Oh, it looks like they're having an interesting conversation over there, or that's an interesting shot. Let me get up, go grab, you know, pull the camera out of my bag and walk over there and kneel down and set up the shot or climb up to the top of this ridge for this shot. You just get exhausted. And it's really hard to make creative, interesting, creative decisions when you're just tired. And that was, was something that I was just fighting against the whole time. I remember on my first bike trip, we were on the Alaskan Highway, my buddy and I, and we were absolutely total idiots. We had no idea what we were doing. (laughs) We ran out of food a bunch, and it really kind of scarred us because I remember being so... I remember crying one time thinking about key lime pie (laughs) because we were so hungry, and we were so far from the next uh, spot to get food. And it kind of scarred me, and my wife even makes fun of me now because I tend to way overpack, even for day trips. And I don't really have to do that now because, uh, you know, we, we buy from Peak Refuel, and they have these awesome freeze-dried meals. Uh, it's lightweight. It weighs almost nothing uh, when there's no water in it. And it's a lot of food. It tastes awesome. So gone are the days of carrying way too much food. And hello to the days where we're only carrying Peak. If you'd like to give Peak Refuel a try, just go to their website, order some food, and at checkout, just use the code ASP20 at checkout to get 20% off. So give them a shot.
I can I can honestly believe that because you know you're looking at everybody else and they're taking a break they have no responsibilities whereas you guys have an entirely separate goal and project going on yeah that's really exhausting on top of doing the same amount of work yeah i mean the other thing i would just say is so uh to limit our our camera package to make things smaller and and as kind of a aesthetic you know um just visual consideration. We shot the entire film on a single lens, a single prime lens, meaning a single focal length. And, and that was a 40 millimeter lens. So, uh, the result is that when you watch the film, it feels really experiential. It feels like you're just immersed in this. You're riding with the guys, you're, you're around with them. You're always kind of the same distance from them. The, the other thing though, is because we didn't have a wide angle lens, when we needed a wider shot, that just means you had to get up and walk further away or hike up to the top of this ridge to get this big wide shot. So like the limited gear that we were able to carry resulted in like having to do more, um, more work on foot to get the footage that we needed. Which in turn leads to more exhaustion. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah but there, totally, there, yeah. there are tricks there are tricks for overcoming that right I, I can imagine well something that uh you know i i live out west i live in denver and okay. i used i used to live in yosemite national park and we used to have fires all the time and i was familiar with like the hotshot crews and i was familiar with what they looked like but i was never really familiar with the actual work they did and watching your film really surprised me with kind of the day-to-day um the day-to-day tasks of a crew did you find that surprising was it what you expected before you started doing research on it and actually experience it for yourself no i mean and i think hotshot crews are a little bit different because hotshot crews are are full of really experienced guys Mm. and um and Although, I mean, Tim's crew, the, his type two initial attack crew does assignments, uh, right next to hotshot crews. I've seen them do get, you know, the exact same assignments. So there's a lot of overlap. But I think what you're probably referring to is like, you know, these guys do do a lot of mopping up. They do do some of the stuff yes. that's not just like, that's not just raw firefighting. And, um, I kind of expected some of that once we started, um, getting into it because, I'd heard from folks who'd been on shot crews and, and other things like, yeah, you know, it gets really tedious or it gets, you know, there are days where it's just awful, um, monotonous and not fun. So I expected some of that, but yeah, I mean, there was an interesting mix. There's, you know, it depends on, on big fires. Sometimes you fight them a little bit differently, which means, you know, you're, you're just kind of digging containment lines and stuff like that. I mean, I was, uh, I was expecting some of it, but it was still eye-opening just how much of kind of drudgery and hurry up and wait there was. Yeah, it, it seemed like a lot of a lot of really monotonous tasks, to be honest. And <laughs> yeah, long, long, long hours. And uh, I didn't see a whole lot of face masks in the smoke. What was the, no, that you, surprised me? Yeah, you never wear them. I've never. Why? Been, I've ne- I, you know, and I don't these know guys if, are breathing in a campfire for like eight hours. Like, well, that's got to be terrible for you. Yeah, you definitely feel it. You definitely feel no it. No kidding. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's bad. I don't know. I mean, I you know, 
every once in a while you, you would see on another crew like someone who had a bandana and everybody just made fun of that <clears> dude because like it's just not part of the culture so so it's um, a cultural thing it's not that it I, wouldn't be useful I, I think it would be useful for the four hours that everyone laughed at you and pointed at you, and then uh, you would take it off. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Until it became like yeah. mandated. It's like my pride, lung cancer. Uh, I'll choose my pride. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I actually bringing that up, um, something that my wife and I, because we watched it together, found really mm-hmm. funny was, you know, these guys would spend you know, hours in the smoke, literally walk away from it to have a cigarette. <laughs> yeah. There were a ton of cigarettes in your film, man. <laughs> yeah. There's, there's a fair amount of smoking that's on this crew in particular. Is there, I mean, you know, it, I just got to ask, is there like a different uh, regard for, for cigarette butts or for ashes with uh, a crew like that versus just your every everyday smoker? Because, you know, some of those fires get started by just a cigarette. Oh, yeah. I mean, guys are, guys are, yeah. I mean, they're super, super careful about that. Um, and I think, you know, I think that's like where you're not going to see smoking like that on a hotshot crew. I think that they're, they're a little more buttoned up. Um, but I think some of that too is also, uh, it's the kind of culture of where this crew comes from, of, of, uh, Grants Pass, uh, Oregon, and uh, just kind of um, also there's a kind of like fatalism to it, which is the way that you see a lot of smoking in the military or like with guys who are on combat deployments. Um, it's just uh, it's just kind of like, well, you know what, like I'm going to be fine and I'll still out hike you and all this. Mm, okay. So, you know, we we've already kind of gotten into the film, but I want to back out a little bit and and just ask you uh why why did you decide to do this film that's a great question so you know we had made a film previously about fly fishing it was called low and clear and uh that film was about two friends who go on a who who basically they shared fly fishing fly fishing was the thing that they did that they loved together they went their separate ways and they come back together for a reunion fishing trip to british columbia and over the course of that trip, their friendship completely falls apart because of the way that ways that they've changed. And oh. the reason I'm saying, um, yeah, everybody check it out. And the reason I'm saying this is because that film was about the outdoors. Ostensibly, it's like it's about fly fishing in some ways, but it was also about these much bigger kind of universal issues of like growing older, how friendships between guys change and shift, how your hobbies um, or your passions kind of bind you together, but they can also be the things that break you apart. And so for, for the next one, we were looking, you know, at least I was looking for something where it could be a story about the outdoors, but it could be about something much more universal and much bigger. And, uh, with wildland firefighting, I'd always had an interest in it. I'd always been fascinated by it. And I was also interested in this idea of like, how do men, how do young men grow up? Like how, how do you come of age? Like what are the things that need to change in you in order to kind of like become a man for lack of a better term? And also how, how the work we do shapes us and how it shapes who we are. And so with, with those kind of neb, like those kind of ideas floating around and not kind of disconnected ideas of like, well, I think this is what I want the next film to be about. Um, 
when we began to pull at the thread of wildland firefighting, we found that like, oh, this is this thing that connects all of this. Like we can tell a story about how guys are shaped by the work they do. We can tell a story about how uh, young guys come of age. And we can tell a story about the outdoors where, you know, in some ways the fire is like a metaphor for this kind of internal frustration that these young guys are angst uh, are feeling. And so that was how it kind of all came together. Um, and certain pieces of it we had, like I knew what we wanted to do with it and certain pieces of it were just total surprises. Hmm. Okay. D do you feel like you, uh, were able to address those issues? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think that it's interesting because, uh, you know, some of the biggest responses to the film are not about fire. They're about the kind of individual stories and, uh, and, and the sense of like, seeing how this work does shape these guys and kind of how they um, carry themselves differently. You know, towards the end of the film, our, our old wise character, who's this former smoke jumper named Ed Float, who does all the training, he kind of encapsulates that in this quote of like, here's what they care. Here's what you carry with you forever. If you've become a firefighter. And that was, that was really what we were after. Hmm. Did you see that change happen in uh, some of those men? I, I mean, I think you did a good job portraying, especially the two friends, the young guys. Yeah. Um, they were really very likable, and um, I enjoyed following their step. Could you see that as clearly as it came across on the film? Yeah. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, as you're constructing it in editing, you know, you're, you're definitely making choices that emphasize that, but... Um, yeah, I mean, I think those guys I saw being very different guys in September than they were in June. And uh, I mean, they looked different physically in the sense that they had, you know, kind of gotten stronger and, and leaner and, and tougher and they carried themselves differently. And, uh, they, they particularly Aiden, um, this one character, he just, at the end of that season, he just had a totally different energy about him. And he ended up meeting a girl and having the confidence to just be like, look, I'm super into you. They're married now, you know, and he just, oh, wow. uh, yeah, he just, he, and they met right after fire season. And, uh, you know, in my mind, I'm like, I don't know if he would have had the confidence to, um, approach this, this, this woman, uh, in the same way that he did it had he not been in fire. It was Aiden. And what was his friend? Oh, Charlie. It was that the red, red haired one. Yep, exactly. I don't know if we can say all this. <laughs> Tell me. Oh yeah, you can say all. Okay, I feel like they grew apart. Yeah, they do. And their, their maybe their level of success within the crew was very different to me. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, that's interesting. Like, what's your read on it? You felt like Aiden was more successful within the crew. I felt like he made the most progress. Um, mm. I could just see his leadership. And mm -hmm. I saw his friend, um, Charlie, you said? Right. Okay. I, yeah, I just totally slipped my mind again. I saw Charlie maybe draw back a little more, um, saying, oh, yeah, this was awesome, but I don't know. Uh, I, don't, I don't know where I want to go from here. He felt a little more directionless um, mm -hmm. and obviously retreated back home. Right. And that... And seeing the stark difference from the lifestyle he was living before to to where his family's from, which was, you know, 
surprisingly uh, uh, nice. Mm-hmm. Um, I felt for him. I felt like, oh man, come on, come on, you got to, you got to keep going down this path. And I felt like Aiden knew that, and I wasn't necessarily worried about him. Does that make sense? Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, here's an interesting, interesting update. Okay, yeah, which is that, I don't know so, after that. <laughs> <clears throat> so Charlie went back to 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 Wichita, um, and he spent a year in Wichita, living in Wichita, doing landscaping jobs, and then moved to Asheville. And he was still, I don't want to say haunted, but like fire and wildland fire was still calling to him. And uh, he decided like, you know what, that is the life for me. And he spent the last, you know, he spent the last year working in fire. And now he's just decided that that is his career. He's going to be a wildland firefighter. And so awesome. the same way in the end of the film, you see that he, you know, it's got a hold on him, whether he wants to acknowledge it or not, um, is what happened in his life. That's incredible, man. And so, yeah, so I, I, I was going to ask about uh, that as well. What is, what are, what, are, what are the seasons of these, these folks? You know, do they work a season then get to go back home? I know that wildfire kind of has its own season, but, uh, yeah, uh, well, you know, because of a lot of things, um, the season's getting longer. It's kind of not, ending. It's, you know, like, uh, right now, Tim's crew, the crew that is portrayed in the film is on the campfire in, uh, in California, the, the fire that just destroyed oh, yeah. paradise. Yeah. So, um, and, uh, and so this year they're going to miss Thanksgiving. And last year that same crew was on the Thomas fire, which was, um, out here in Ventura and the crew, uh, worked right up until Christmas day. They came home Christmas Eve night. So, you know, the, the season, the fire seasons are getting much longer where you have dispatches in November and December. Um, but primarily there are some guys who work seasonally, um, meaning that they, a lot of guys will like either be done with college or be between, you know, their, the, the, uh, their summer off, they're going and doing this. And then every crew has some full-time year round employees and when they are not, when they're out of fire season, they're doing the project work, which is um, thinning forests. And then Grayback in particular does a lot of prescribed burns. So in the spring, they'll do a lot of putting fire on the ground and, and burning um, to clean up forests as a way of, uh, of fire prevention. Man, that's, that's, some, that's a tough life. Mm-hmm. Did you feel that, uh, could you see yourself doing more of it? Did you enjoy it? I loved it. I, hmm. I, abs- I absolutely fell in love with it. Really? And, yeah. And, uh, and you know, I like, I, there's a very good chance that I'll go back out next summer without a camera just to work. Um, uh, just, that's because, awesome. just because I miss it. Um, and you know, and, and I think like the thing too is, the same way that these guys were changed by the work, I was changed by the work. You know, um, there's no way. I just don't, I mean, I, I don't think that there are very many people who could do that. And you could catch a fire, you dig line, you get the fire to lie down. You've got helicopters and planes supporting you. You're 
hiking out for an hour and a half. Everybody's exhausted. You're looking at each other, you know, encouraging each other, encouraging guys you don't even like. You're like, I, I do not like that dude. But you look at me like, come on, you can do this. Let's go. And um, and that that level of camaraderie, I don't think there's anybody who could do it and not be changed by it in some way, either large or small. Interesting. So, so is it something that you would encourage people to try if they don't know what, you know, maybe to do? Yeah. I mean, I think that if you, if you're young and if you're strong and if you, um, love the outdoors and if you've got, uh, if you are, if you think of yourself as tough or you think of yourself as, um, having some grit uh, then absolutely you should do it. And if those are the things that you're looking for, if you're looking to be tested, if you're looking to develop some inner strength, I think that, uh, it's a great, great thing, you know, because I mean, it's, it's like, it's like anything else, like, well, I mean, not like anything else, but it's like any other challenge, which is there are moments where you think, God, I'm so tired. I don't know how I'm going to do this. I don't know how I'm going to get through, you know, the next hour. Um, and you have to find a way. And once you're able to find a way, you can look back and say, well, I made it through through that. So now I can make it through this. I mean, I really think that, that those are the kind of building blocks of a certain kind of personal resilience. So has that level of resilience changed the way that you produce film now? Uh, it's made the, I mean, that's a really good question. It's made the moments of uncertainty and moments of like, I don't know what's going to happen with this project. It's made them much more tolerable, you know, mm. because you're just like, like, you're just like, I can, I can get through this. I can get through this. Like, I know, you know, you know, that the, the answer is not to sit there and get stuck in your own thoughts. The answer is to, to, to put it into action and to work. And when you do that, you know, good things happen. So, um, yeah, I think it's definitely just, I mean, it's just changed the way that I operate on a daily basis. I'd say. The Adventure Sports Podcast is also brought to you by Powder 7 Ski Shop. Powder 7 is Colorado's premier homegrown and family-owned ski shop. Online at powder7.com, they offer a huge selection of new and used ski gear, plus full tech and boot fitting services at their shop in Golden. With personalized customer service, they set up skiers from all over the world with perfect gear. From brands like Kessley, Rosignol, Black Crows, and Head, Powder 7 is all skiing all the time. So check out powder7.com to learn more. Now, back to the episode. I've actually heard a lot about grit lately and how much is, is lacking in today's culture. Mm-hmm. I guess I maybe wasn't aware of that, but I talked to uh, on the phone with the president of a university the other day, and he was saying he could just seize it year after year. Certain things grow in people, but but grit is not one of them uh, with each passing generation. So I, I I think you're right. I think that's an invaluable uh, invaluable quality. And if you can have it in today's world, I, I think it does set you apart a little bit. Um, and there is no place you're going to learn it better than fighting fires. So f- from your experience um, with the crew and with kind of, I mean, you're, you you fought a classic. California wildfire. Mm-hmm. Do you, do you see the the system that's in place to fight those fires? Do you see it as a efficient? Did you see any big gaps, or do you say, "Wow, these people are doing a fantastic job"? Um, I mean, so we sh- I should just say, like, despite 
having made this film being in fire like i'm very much like still um n- n- you know not not an expert by any stretch right but I, I i know more than probably the average person right and i would say this like like uh so different fires are fought differently and different um different uh different groups whether it's cal fire or odf or or the forest service, I think fight fires differently. And I think that, um, uh, because of, because fire behavior is changing so dramatically and, and like, it's not in the film, uh, but I firmly believe, you know, man-made climate change is dramatically increasing the way that, uh, increasing fire behavior and the extremities of fire behavior. And, and we saw that in the campfire. We saw that on the Woolsey fire that just in the last month, um, and so I think that the way that we fight fires is going to have to change. Um, and I think that one of the things that's happening is, uh, you know, there used to be a kind of, at times a philosophy of like, let it burn, like, okay, let's just kind of keep an eye on this fire and not let it get away from us. Um, but those, those approaches have been kind of becoming more problematic. And a perfect example is in 2017, the Chetco bar fire in Oregon, at a certain point, it was like half an acre. And it was just, it was just kind of skunking around and, and smoldering on the floors. It wasn't getting into the trees and they kind of like sought containment of it. And then at a certain point, and this is like after, I would say like a month, maybe, or three weeks, it just blew up. And then it was threatening towns and all of this stuff. So I think that there's there's going to have to be a different approach in both how we manage forests, which is not to say logging them, but to say taking care of the, the understory, taking care of a lot of the, the stuff that accumulates on the ground. And then the way that we fight fires in, you know, I, and I don't know what that's going to be. Is it going to be, you know, different lines of containment, multiple lines of containment? Is it going to be a much stronger initial attack where, you know, the second that something's half an acre, it's like, get it out. Um, but I do think that there's going to have to be a really big shift. Yeah, it's definitely challenging because that is, that is definitely the mindset in a lot of places, maybe that have the uh, luxury of being a little more, um, a little more humid or a little, a little more lush. Letting mm-hmm. a fire burn is obviously it's healthy for for um, for the forest, but you can also not allow that underbrush to get too big because if a fire right. does, you know, you, you know, it's they suppress fires for years and years and years, and now they can't. But now with the climate drying out in these hotter places that are getting warmer year after year, you you just simply cannot do that. It'll wreak absolute havoc for millions and millions of people. And looking at how big of a problem it is, I noticed in your film that the tactics to fight them are still so, because it's needed, and this is not a, a at fault of the, 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 the services in place, but like, it's so rudimentary, like, wow, they are literally digging a line with like shovels yeah. and picks for this thing that like, it's a fire. But it doesn't look that intimidating when you're looking at just one little line of it. You got to remember that flame is extended half a mile in either direction, burning its way, right. which could just get out of hand at any second. It's just such a, it's almost like a cancer. It's so complex to solve, and the tactics in place are so uh, 
when you see it on the film, it really put it in perspective for me. Like, wow, that's literally what it is. It's literally fighting it like you would a rabid animal. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, I just didn't know that. And also, I think you see in the film, too, that like flame lengths that are one to two feet, three feet, yeah. you know, which, which seem very manageable. Mm-hmm. Like very quickly, they're in the trees and all of a sudden it's roaring. And you're like, oh, that, okay, now it's, now this is big and like now we have to knock it down and all this stuff. So, you know, the, the way that fire is, it, it changes just over the course of a day. You know, a certain section of a fire will change over the course of a day. But, uh, what I was going to say is, is, you know, fire is, if fire's good for a forest when it's a certain type of fire, right? Which is meaning like when it is burning, on the ground. What we just saw out here yeah. in the Wolves Fire, where it burned 88% of the Santa Monica National Mountain, I mean, um, you know, National Recreation Area, it's like that area is just moonscaped now. And it's not going to come back for 30 years. And I think that, that with that, with fire in the landscape, like we have to keep it as healthy fire. And I actually think, you know, that's what prescribed burns do so well is they clean up the forest, they stay on the ground, they get rid of that, that underbrush. Um, and I think that if, I mean, look, if we had a giant, you know, a budget, which we probably need to do this, that would probably help forests a lot is to just, whether it's prescribed burns or, or project work where you're just getting all that stuff out and removing as much fuel. Because ultimately, that's how you stop a fire, right? Is you have to either remove, you know, you're, you have to remove fuel, whether that's by digging a line or putting in dozer lines or whatever. So the more that we could do that outside of fire season, I think the better off we'd be. Hmm. So, so it's it's fought before it's ever started. In some ways, I mean, I, I you know, I've also heard um, people talking about that certain mountain towns should basically just build a moat of defensible space around them. You know, just like yeah. big, big dozer lines and just like, you know, clear out, clear out a lot of a lot of that so that there's a fire break, you know, before before it gets too close. And also, you know, I, I realized that for you guys, you know, you're you're up on this hillside. It's just a little fire line, you know, a flame that's a couple feet off the ground, which does not seem that intimidating, but like, what do you, you don't have a lake full of water right there. So I can see water's heavy and it's hard to move. And so are some of these other uh, retardant substances. And yeah, it it seems so, (laughs) I watched it and think, wow, that seems so helpless for them right now. Like, cause this thing is so out, it can get so out of control and all you have is this pick and the shovel and there's really, and that is honestly the best thing to do. You know what I mean? Like it, it it's yep. really puts into perspective why fires are so dangerous and volatile. And, um, yeah, I just think the film did a fantastic job. Mm, thank you. Yeah. And so you, you obviously, you know, you've been talking about it during this interview and I can just tell in your voice, you're, you're obviously extremely passionate about this now. Uh, where do you think this newfound passion for firefighting is going to, going to take your filmmaking? Uh, I, you know, I don't think I'm going to make another film about fire, to be honest. Um, I think that, uh, just in looking at the careers of people that I admire, um, it's, 
not necessarily, you know, I don't, I don't like want to be the person who's like, this is my beat and I'm only going to make this stuff about that. I mean, I think that if there's an opportunity, which there probably will be to make, to tell other stories about fire, I'll be happy to, to do that and interested in, in doing that and, um, looking at a bigger scope. But to me, I mean, I think that, um, what I'm interested in is documentaries that are not about, um, like a hot button topic. You know what I mean? Where it's like, uh, like a call to act, like a call to action, social, so social issue documentary, you know, uh, which is, uh, it's just never been my interest. Uh, I think to me, documentaries are much more interesting when they're open hearted and they are about the human experience in a really big way. And, and they combine this feeling of being epic and being intimate. And so that's what I'm after. And those are the, the, the stories that I'm after, you know, and, and for me, like every film starts with a question and it starts with like for, for this film, um, it was how do young men grow up, you know, for other films, it was like, well, what happens to people who are labeled with potential, you know, like, uh, just stuff like that. And so I think that for me, it's like just trusting the process of like, okay, if I ask the right question and find the right subject, I'll be able to make a good film. And so that's, that's kind of what I'm taking from this and moving forward and trying to take all of the grit and the hard work that went into this and, and know that no matter how tough the next project gets, having this one um, in the rear view mirror will give me the, the strength to just kind of keep pushing. Hmm. Yeah. So, so it's not, it's not necessarily the subject, but it's the principles you've learned through it. And, you know, not saying inspiration won't come from maybe one of the storylines or something you discovered while filming this. Um, and I, and I appreciate you staying away from, uh, you know, hot button topics, but ironically fire is kind of a hot button topic right now. <laughs> it is, but I think that it's like, if, it, it'd be different if we were like, and there are films like this, right, where it's like, look at what's happening. Like, we need to, you know, this is about this, and it's about this, like, social issue thing, and it's always talking head. Ah, uh, so it's like a call like, to action, basically. Yeah, like, call to action, like, really didactic and stuff like that. Like, um, yeah, fire's a hot-button issue. And the reason, a, a big part of wanting to make this film, too, is that, in my experience— and this is, was particularly true before uh, the Granite Mountain Hotshots tragedy in Yarnell. We never heard about the people who fight these fires. You never hear about wildland fires. And I remember when the three firefighters died in Twisp, Washington, which was 2015, um, the New York Times had their deaths on the front page for like, of their website for like an hour. And that was it. And... Uh, you know, there was a part of me that was like the only time that we hear about wildland firefighters is when there's a tragedy. And there's a kind of general lack, I think, of appreciation or understanding that these are regular folks who are willing to do this stuff, both for their own reasons, but also out of a desire to be of service to others. And no matter what socioeconomic background they come from, no matter what's in their past, you know, particularly for, for the guys in our film, like they really deserve a lot of respect and love. And um, so I think that, you know, one of the hopes with this film, it's like, yeah, we're touching on a hot button topic, but my hope is that you watch this film and you're never going to hear 
a story on the radio or see something on the, the news about a fire, about wildfire, without for at least a moment thinking about the people who are fighting it. Yeah. And I appreciated the film coming from that angle. Those are those kinds of stories are always incredibly interesting um, to know who who's behind it. Yeah, let me just say one thing that so if people are interested in this film, um, we're doing a theatrical release of the film in January. Uh, and the way that it works is if you go to our website, which is wildlandfilm.com, you can see if there's a screening taking place in your area and, and reserve a ticket, or you can sign up to host a screening at a local movie theater. And it doesn't cost any money to host a, a screening. And a portion of the money that comes into the film is going to go to the Wildland Firefighter Foundation, which supports wildland firefighters who've been uh, killed or injured uh, in the line of duty. And then also we're going to do um, we're going to donate a bunch of money to the California Wildfire Foundation, which helps the victims of the wildfires that we just uh, just had out here. So the website, one more time, is wildlandfilm.com. And that's where people can find uh, they can sign up for updates. They can find where the film's playing, or they can bring a screening to to their um, their town or city. And so, those screenings are also going to coincide with the release of the film theatrically. That is how we're releasing the film. Okay, uh, we're releasing it in this limited theatrical way, where there's oh, going to be I see. Okay. Dot, dotted screenings throughout the country, um, and uh, and so you just go to our website. And you'll see when there's a screening happening near you, or you can just bring a screening to you. Yeah. Is there, is there any parting, uh, you know, perspective or advice or, or something you want to share about the film or about yourself before, uh, before we're done? No, I mean, I think, I, I think, you know, um, just, uh, I hope that people enjoy it, you know, and I, I hope that people get something from it. I mean, I, I firmly believe that if you believe in the power of work, uh, to shape you. And if you have an interest in the outdoors, this film is really worth your time and, and you'll get something from it. So, uh, seek it out, find it, bring it to you and, and help us raise money for these folks. Awesome. Yeah. And I, I totally give him my full endorsement. I absolutely loved it. Um, it's a beautiful, it's beautifully shot. Awesome. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks so much. Thank you, man. Take care. Yeah. Have a good one. Hey, thank you so much for listening. If you know somebody that would make a good guest on the show, or if you have a pretty cool story about the outdoors or adventure sports that you want to tell us, please call us and leave a voicemail at 812-MAIL-POD. That is 812-624-5763. You can also send us an email at info at adventuresportspodcast.com. Again, it is always helpful to leave us a review on iTunes. And if you'd like to be a supporter of the show, you can give five bucks a month at patreon.com slash adventure sports podcast and links for all that stuff is also in the show notes. So thanks again for listening and y'all get out there and do something so you can be on the show one day. All right, later. Don't forget if you want to save 20% off the best backpacking food you're ever going to eat, go to peakrefuel.com and use ASP 20 at checkout.